ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You love good, deep conversations, right? Well, while Richard and Sarah warm up for this episode of Conversations, let me tell you about my podcast. I'm Fran Kelly and I'm fascinated with friendship and the people we come to think of as our chosen family. I'll be having some long and very personal conversations with pairs of friends within the queer community. Join me as I talk to Narelda Jacobs, Courtney Act, Josh Thomas, Danny Laidley, Ida Buttrose and more. Just search for Yours Queerly, hit that little plus sign and follow along in the ABC Listen app. Growing up in Belgium, Brigitte Muir would read all about the adventures of Tintin. And as a teenager, she fell in love with the outdoors and adventure. As she grew older, Brigitte became obsessed with a big dream to climb the seven highest mountains on the seven continents. This dream led Brigitte to push her body and her mind to their limits. She battled through snow and ice, broke records, but also lost loved ones and discovered some unexpected truths about herself along the way. Hi, Brigitte. Hi, Sarah. How much was uh, Tintin a part of your life growing up in Belgium? He was a big part. You know, what happened was that my mum didn't want to be bothered when she was doing the housework, so she'd sit me on the sofa with a comic book, and it happens to be Tintin. <laughs> and so I was absorbed in this adventures, and I just wouldn't move while she was vacuum cleaning around me. <laughs> so were you living in the countryside as a kid? Not at all. I was living in a valley filled with factories. So I guess books were the way to get, you know, to other places. <laughs> so did she encourage your adventuring spirit from a young age? Not really, because I think that she was very scared for us having grown up during the war. She actually spent a couple of years in a sewer, living in the sewer mm. because there was bombing around. So underground was really not good for her. And there I was being 15, having discovered caving and asking my mum and dad, can I go and join this caving club and go and, you know, explore things on the ground? That was no. It was <laughs> like, a no from her. It was a no. And of course, that wasn't good enough because I really wanted to do that caving jaunt. It was everything that I dreamt of from reading books. So we had a three weeks war and I won. You won. How? Was it just attrition? You just didn't give up? I didn't give up. <laughs> and what was it? That's usually what happens with me. What was it about caving that had caught your imagination? It was so different from anything I knew. I had gone to a commercial fair, being 15, with a friend of mine from high school, Karine, and we came across that little stand which was advertising caving activities. And so there were pictures on the wall of people in those, you know, yellow plastic salopettes and head torches on and abseiling down bottomless pits, it looked like. And it was like, wow, that really looks like adventure. I want to do that. And that's how it started, really. So did you have the right kind of equipment for your first caving trip? Oh, no, no, no. It all started with stuff that my dad pinched at the factory. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, he was, he was a steel worker. And so I got boots with, you know, those steel toes and, oh, salopettes and helmets. And 
you name it. And then once it became obvious that I was not going to stop doing that, uh, once a month he would take me to the caving club um, and he would buy me one piece of equipment. And that was the most exciting part of the month. I went caving once, Brigitte, in the Mendip Hills in England. And I remember getting to the entrance and there's just there's just this hole in the ground with water rushing into it. And mm-hmm. every part of me said, do not get in. And I made myself get in and I hated every single second and I just wanted to get back out again. What was the first time like underground for you? Oh, it was amazing. It was in a Belgian forest, of course, so you imagine the woods with leaves everywhere and birds are singing and whatnot. And then there's that hole in the ground, as you mentioned. And in this one, there was a ladder, one of those... um, it's a ladder which is made out of wire, so it's not a stable ladder. It's just a little flimsy thing like you see in circuses. And people were going down that ladder into the great unknown. And I was just waiting for my turn. And when my turn came, I just got on there and there was a safety rope. And I started going down. And it was amazing. There was no noise whatsoever and it was totally black except for that little light that was illuminating a tiny part of the cave I was in and I felt at home. It was so beautiful and the smell was extraordinary. It was a smell, a very earthy smell, you know, soil which is wet and temperature was very pleasant. It's about 15 degrees at all times of the year in caves. And it was just beautiful. It was so exciting. So I got to the bottom of that ladder and there were a few people already there. And they told me that um, someone had died diving in uh, the, the little lake that was at the bottom of the cave. And so it was a bit of a reality check. It's not just adventure. You know, this is serious business. You, you can die doing things like what we're doing. So that that was there from the start. Be careful, but don't let danger stop you from exploring life. You loved being underground. What about the social life? Was was that part of the appeal as a teenager too, of those close-knit communities of, of adventurers? Oh, yes, absolutely. It was wonderful because... Being at school, you know what it's like when you're a teenager at school. It's it's really, really hard. And in fact, I don't know how kids do it these days with all the pressure from social media. It was hard enough in those days when, you know, you had to keep up with what the girlfriend was wearing. And I was very shy and I wasn't very comfortable with boys and all that. And I was thrown in an environment where there were only boys. <laughs> And funnily enough, because I was a tomboy, I fitted right in. And I guess that's how it became what really obsessed me in those days. I was thinking caving every day of the week. I was saving money. I was working as a checkout chick, so I was saving money to buy stuff to go caving. I was going on caving trips in Europe. And, of course, I was enjoying the attention being the only girl (laughs) in a bunch of boys. (laughs) So how did you switch, Brigitte, from being underground, queen of the underground, up to mountain peaks? It happened very naturally because uh, some of the people that I was caving with were also into rock climbing. And a couple of them introduced me to rock climbing. And I thought, wow, this is really quite amazing, you know, being outside and, and, and playing dancer on the rock. It was 
an extraordinary sensation. And of course, you could see everything above the ground. And you didn't have to clean all your gear afterwards, which was a big thing. You get very muddy in caves in Belgium. And where was your first adventure away from Europe with climbing? Well, a friend of mine called Camille, who was a rock climber, had been to a place in Canada called the Logan Mountains. And his trip had tried to climb a mountain called the Lotus Flower Tower, which is that magnificent mountain. It's just the most beautiful lines. And when you're a climber, you just fall in love with mountains. And I fell in love with it. And he invited me to come with him to try that mountain again. So I borrowed a sleeping bag from a friend and I went again back to my supermarket <laughs> and saved money to to get my ticket to Canada. And That's a lot of check-outing to get a air ticket, is, I imagine. Is. A lot of beeping. Oh, yeah, but I loved it. It was just so much fun being there because I knew that the money I was saving working on Wednesdays, Saturdays and whenever they needed me was to go and have adventures. Hmm. So it, it was a very joyful experience. And what happened once you got to Canada? Well, I'd never been in a plane before, and after the plane to Canada, we caught a bus to a mining town, and from there we um, had a helicopter flight to the mountains. So I was I was really baptised from the <laughs> air, that's for sure. And we ended up in that amazing place. It was called the Cirque of the Unclimbables because they were very, very steep mountains, and, and they were just beautiful, and there was snow all around, and we could see foot pole prints around. So there were animals there as well, which I wasn't very happy with because I have a phobia about bears. <laughs> so anyway, we, we spent about two weeks in a little cave and making our way to that uh, lotus flower tower every morning and uh, fixing ropes on it. But the weather was really bad towards the end of our trip and we did, didn't end up getting to the top. But it was an amazing experience, you know, being in that extraordinary wilderness, me coming from a valley filled with factories in Belgium. It was like, wow, I want more of this. Well, where was the first mountain that you reached the summit of? Well, that was in Italy, a lot closer uh, to home. It was a mountain called the uh, Gran Paradiso. And I guess it had the right name, the Great Paradise. It, it set me for a life of climbing mountains. And once again, you know, it was uh, the gear I had was pretty primitive and it was borrowed left, right and centre. And I was with my boyfriend uh, at the time and another friend. And we just, you know, walked to the top and then back down. It was a very easy mountain. But at the same time, getting to a summit was a pretty amazing experience. If you haven't done it, you just... Don't know what you're missing. And what do the Alps look like from the top of, of Grand Paradiso? What do you remember of that view? You know what? I don't remember anything about the view. <laughs> I think I was just so buggered from getting up there <laughs> that I didn't even look at the view. And also we didn't have cameras. So I have absolutely no photographic memories of, of that trip. Just just what stayed in my head. And I think what stayed most in my head was that we were sleeping in a in a hut, as you do when you climb in the Alps in a dormitory with lots of people and I couldn't sleep because everybody was snoring. <laughs> so it wasn't the mountain that it was the problem, it was the fellow climbers. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting not having cameras, which we, we now, you know, are so associated with any experience. What you carried was the feeling, it sounds like. The feeling, yes. the rush of doing it. 
Mm, yeah, and also just just learning how to move safely because when you've got spikes on your feet, it takes a bit of practice to to be able to move without catching them on the side of your leg. So there you are, Brigitte, living close to the Alps and all the kind of extraordinary climbing opportunities in Europe. What brought you to Australia? Because we're not famous for big mountains. No, that's right. Well, after I went to Canada, I was totally enthused about going on another trip. And I was at uh, university in those days doing a degree in archaeology and history of art. And near my university, there was a travel agency with a very good friend of mine working there, Marcel. And so I was always seeing Marcel to find out about, you know, tickets to here and there, because once you've gone somewhere, you just want to go somewhere else. And I decided I was going to go to Kenya because in those days, which was 1979, everybody was going to Kenya to climb over there, Mount Kenya. So I thought, well, I'm a climber now. I'm, I'm going to go and climb Mount Kenya too. So I arrived at my travel agency and talked to Marcel. Marcel, what's, what's the price of a ticket to Kenya? And she was just you know, looking on her desk. And she said, oh, that's interesting. The price of a ticket to Kenya is actually the same as the price of a ticket to Australia. <laughs> And that was it. I thought, that wow. That was it. You changed your plans on, on I that. I changed my plan there and then. <laughs> Australia, yes, let's go to Australia. <laughs> what did you know about this place on the other side of the world? Well, that it was on the other side of the world <laughs> and that there were kangaroos around. <laughs> and that was good enough. Well, I, I tried to find out what you could climb in Australia. Obviously, I had found out from my atlas that there were no big mountains there. And I wrote to some people who were editors of climbing magazines over there and they sent me information. People were, were very helpful. And so we decided, I, w- I went over with three friends, we hired a camper van and we toured Australia and we stopped at some places and ended up at Mount Rapalis, which is uh, near Nalimak, where I still live now. And that's how the life in Australia started. And how different was the rock climbing in Australia compared to what you were used to? It was very different because in Australia, there was no fixed protection on the rock. In Belgium, it's mostly limestone. And that means that you have to put pitons, which are like nails with a loop, and you can clip a ring onto them and pass your rope through them. And so they're already in place in the rock. But in Australia, there was none of them. You had to put your own protection in. And that meant that that was another skill to learn. But also the way I was used to climbing in Belgium was that you don't fall when you rock climbing in Belgium. You just work within your limits. In Australia, people were falling all the time because they were working on routes. So they were trying a move. If that didn't work and they fell, well, they went back up the rope and tried again. And we just didn't do that in Belgium. If someone fell at the cafe above the rocks, everybody knew about it. It was like, wow, such and such took a fall on that climb. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. In Australia, of course, everybody falls all the time. So it's no news value. You met an Australian climber called John. How did the two of you decide to get married? Well, I was working as a grape picker to have a bit of money on one of my trips to Australia. And while I was grape picking, my visa ran out. So I asked a friend of mine in Melbourne 
to go to immigration and get me an extension. So I sent him a passport and the letter saying, oh, I'm here in Mildura, picking grapes, having a great time, blah, blah, blah. Can you go to immigration and get me a visa? And the dear man went to immigration and asked for a visa. And they said, oh, have you got proof that you can do this? And he showed them the letter. <laughs> and they saw that I was working <laughs> illegally as a tourist picking grapes in Mildura. <laughs> so that was the end of that. I had two days to leave the country. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And I thought, right, my maiden's name is very well known now. There's no way I'm going to go back to Australia. Um, maybe we should get married, John. <laughs> And I'll change my name. And he was up for that? Oh, yes, he was. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, there must have been something you really loved about this place to go to that extent. What was so special about this country that you decided to get married to stay here? The freedom of the space, I think. that In, in Belgium, everything is so little. That's what always struck me when I went back. Everything is little. In Australia, it's just the country of space. You know, you've got that huge sky, or you certainly do here in the Wimmera, and not many people. You've got space. And I guess because I discovered space underground as well as in the mountains, finding space in the place where I could live was very appealing. So where did you and John live after getting married? Well, his parents were very generous, you know. They bought us our first home. (laughs) And that was a family tent. (laughs) Finally, accommodation that all parents can afford, housing that parents can afford, a family tent. So where where did you pitch it? Well, at the foot of a Rappelis, where else? (laughs) (laughs) And how did did that suit you? How long were you inside that tent for as your home? Uh, I think we were there probably for a couple of years. I think what did it was that... It was very hard to have a shower because there were no cars around at the time. There was only, I think, most of the time, one person who had a car at the mount and there were lots of climbers staying there. So it was always, you know, groveling. Can I get a lift to town, please? Can I get a lift to town? So you had to hitchhike to go shopping and to go and have a shower. Were you climbing every day? Was was that the kind of centre of your, your life there? Yes, it certainly was. Yes, we had uh, the Bible, the Rappelis guidebook, and we'd write every day what we did. And, you know, if we did it leading the party or seconding with the rope in front of us. And yes, and um, around the fire was a very social place, too, because in those days, there were no regulations like they are now. And I understand that you need regulations when you have lots of people, but you have to remember that, you know, in the early 80s, there was hardly anyone around. And the climbers who were living there used to go to the rubbish tip and get chairs and cupboards and whatnot. So you had your little living room around the, the campfire. <laughs> it was very colourful. You wanted to test yourself overseas at at higher peaks than were on offer in Australia. Tell me about Mount Shivling in the Himalayas, which I think is over 6,500 metres. What's different about being that high up, which was a new experience for you? Well, being high didn't come easily to me. And I was a very slow acclimatizer. You know, your body once you start going to altitude that it's not used to, starts making red cells to be able to carry more oxygen because, of course, at high altitude, there is less oxygen in the air. And that's a process which takes time. And some people, it happens easily. And some others, like me, it takes quite a bit of time of going up to the new altitude and coming back down. 
altitude sickness has got some very, very classic uh, symptoms. And one of them is mega headache, short of breath. You know, you, you get all those symptoms that, that make you know that you shouldn't be there. And the, the only way to cure that really is to go back down, which is what I did. I, um, I actually spent some time in an ashram, which was below the mountain, because Sea Shivling is at the source of the Ganges. So there was, it was a very religious place, obviously, and I was able to spend time in an ashram with a bunch of Indian people who were on a pilgrimage there. And then I went back up and started climbing then. And as your body got more adapted to being at that altitude, Brigitte, what was the climbing like? Well, on Shivling, it was very hard climbing. Nobody had ever climbed the route that we tried before. And I don't think that anyone has repeated it since, actually. It was in 86. You, you were climbing with John. What did mm-hmm. you realise about how that worked for you? What it was like to climb with someone who, like him who was a very experienced climber of those kind of high-altitude mountains? Well, John is probably Australia's all-around most amazing adventurer and climbing with someone who is a lot stronger than you are, a lot stronger than anyone really, um, puts you in a place where you just don't know what you can and cannot do without that kind of safety. And I wanted to find out what I could do in the mountains without having him to rely on. Well, you decided upon a pretty extreme way to find out exactly what you were capable of on the mountains. You set yourself the goal of climbing the highest peak on each of the seven continents, something which no Australian male or female had yet achieved. Where did that idea come from? Well, in 1984, John was part of an expedition to Everest with Peter Hillary and a few other people. And at base camp, there was a guy called Dick Bass, an American millionaire, and he was in the process of climbing the highest peak on each continent. So I guess the idea of climbing the seven summits, as they became to be known, started there at the back of my head. But his book had come come out in 88, and I read it, and I thought, well, yeah, I can do that. I'm going to go around the world and climb mountains. That sounds like fun. You started this mission in Alaska before moving on to Tanzania and then set your sights on Argentina. What's the highest peak in in South America and how did you get there? Well, the highest peak in uh, South America is called Aconcagua and it is located in Argentina near the border with Chile. And being the little, you know, Tintin fan that I was, I was going to go and have adventures along the way. So I chose the most adventurous way I could think of of getting there, which was stopping at Easter Island on the way. And I had a wonderful time there. It wasn't touristy at all in those days. And I put my pack on and I went hiking and I slept on the highest point of the the island. And I found some underground passages with... uh, Signs of um, habitation. It was it was really quite an extraordinary time, and it was a good way to get used to being on my own and self reliant. That that came in very handy later on when I arrived in Argentina and made my way to the base camp. What sort of mountain is it to climb? What's the the landscape or the geology like on that mountain? 
It's a very barren landscape. It, it's in a rain shadow area because we've got all the rain coming from Chile and then you've got that the Andes barrier and Aconcagua is on the eastern side of that. But it's very beautiful, lots of colours in the rocks. It can be very windy and it can be very hard to climb. In fact, I've got friends who climbed Everest and failed on Aconcagua because <laughs> the weather can be very, very bad. And how was it to get to the top of that mountain solo? It was quite an amazing experience. I wasn't actually completely alone. I had a little teddy bear in my pocket that my <laughs> sister had made for me. <laughs> so that was quite reassuring, you know. It was over my heart and all I had to do was to put my hand on it and it was like my sister was with me. But it was, it was oh, it's very hard work getting to the top of Aconcagua because it's a big scree. So it's basically a huge pile of rocks that keep falling down under your feet. And so you, you have one step up, two step down kind of stuff unless you find, you know, the right way to, to go about it. So it's it's quite tiring. And then I got to the summit and there was a cross there. And I looked over the horizon and I could see all the way to the ocean on the other side of Chile. And I thought of my sister and I started crying. And, and I love the place so much that I ended up spending quite a few years guiding people to the top of Aconcagua, actually. Well, the final hurdle in this big quest of yours to climb the highest seven peaks in seven continents was Everest, which no Australian woman had ever reached the peak of before. Is that right? That's right, yes. It was difficult because not only would I have to climb the mountain, but I also needed a hell of a lot of money to to get there. And that was something that's usually, well, I just went out, got a job, like even grape picking legally this time to <laughs> save money and go climbing. But with Everest, it was a big budget. It was over 20,000 US dollars. It's a being, lot of grapes. It's a lot of grapes, <laughs> way too many grapes. <laughs> so I had to find sponsors. So that was the first um, hard bit and, and eventually got enough money to go in 93. And when you... Are there standing before Mount Everest, this extraordinary creation? What's it like? What are you, what's going through your head? What are you feeling and thinking? Well, the first time I saw it from Tibet, which is the way we went to in 93, I was absolutely petrified. See, I, I was, uh, well, in those days, smoking cigarettes was kind of cool, so I was smoking cigarettes. And the more I looked at it, the more I was smoking because I was so scared. You know, <laughs> I'll never be able to get up that thing. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So, Brigitte, your first attempt at Everest in 1993 failed. You were back again in 1995. What happened? Well, in 95, I was still climbing with John and 
we were doing pretty well until we got to the last camp on the mountain and, and John came down with something, I'm not sure what it was, but he couldn't breathe. So I had to help him down the mountain and it was it was kind of bizarre as an experience because there was probably the only time in my life that I was stronger than he was. <laughs> but anyway, I helped him down the mountain and got back to base camp with him and the doctor at base camp said, oh, well, John, you can go back up the mountain. It's not on for you anymore. And there I was. I didn't have a climbing partner to go for the summit. But it was at the end of the expedition and there was a last group of our team that was in place to go for the summit. So I rushed back up the mountain and caught up with them at the last camp. So I got there and they fumbling about getting their gear ready. And because I'm the, I'm the last one to have made it to camp, I had to find oxygen bottles and get all my gear together. And I ended up being the last one in the group to leave camp. So I was we were going up a pretty steep uh, section of the climb, which had some very old ropes attached to it. So you could hold on the rope if you wanted to, but you knew that you couldn't put any weight on it because it just wasn't safe. So it was there for mental comfort more than anything. And so off we went. And at one stage, I think we were about at 8,500 metres, my head torch started to not work. Just when, you know, blink, blink and then out. And sorry, are you climbing in darkness, Bridget? We are, yes, yes. Because it's such a long way up, you have to start quite early in the morning, as in, you know, any time from midnight, really. So you're climbing in the dark, you get into the summits, if you're lucky at first light or a bit later, and then you are able to come back down, which is always the most dangerous part, for two reasons. You're not focused anymore and also you're going down and it's easier to trip down or trip over when you're going down. I mean, just try going up and down stairs and you'll see what I mean. So you're making this ascent in the darkness and your head torch blinks off. That's right, yes. So we are in a really steep part of the climb just below the summit ridge and because I'm not really happy with my climbing partners, you know, they've just been going on and ignoring me, really. I thought, well, I'm going to fix this myself. So I take my, my light off and I fumble with it, change the batteries, blah, 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 nothing works. I thought, all right, girl, you better ask for help. And I look up and there's no one there. They've gone. And I, I didn't even realise that when I was playing with my light, trying to make it work. And I couldn't see anything. So I couldn't go up and I couldn't go down. So I had to sit the rest of the night where I was, which was on a tiny, probably A4 bit of paper, <laughs> little ledge on the side of the mountain. Brigitte Muir, how, how did you try to keep yourself warm? I guess it'd be the first thing exposed like that. Yes. Well, many things were going through my head and it was none of them were about dying, um, which is really good. Uh, I think what kept me alive was one, I was planning to go back up and just thinking, how am I going to do that? You know, I can go back down to the base camp, to the, the last camp when the light comes and find someone else to climb with, blah, 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 blah. And also I was just so angry at the others for leaving me behind that I think that kept me warm too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway, by the time light came, I was just way too cold to keep going. You know, my, my hands were just stiff 
fortunately, I didn't have any frostbite, but I knew that I couldn't keep going up. I had to come down, so that's what I did. And I made it back to the last camp and went back to my tent and started crying. <laughs> you must have been devastated. Oh, I was, I was. And even more so when the others came back to our camp, the Camp 4, and they had made it to the summit and I started to, you know, make brews for them and they asked me why I was upset. <laughs> so this is where a normal person, Brigitte, would say, I've made two really tough efforts to climb this mountain. It's not going to happen. But you are not a normal person and in 1996 you made <laughs> a you. third attempt at Mount Everest, this time from the Nepal side. What's the biggest obstacle when you come at Everest from Nepal as opposed to Tibet? Well, when you go from Nepal, it's a beautiful, beautiful walk-in. In, in Tibet you drive to base camp, but in Nepal you have the, the, the amazing chance to actually walk your way to the base camp, to approach the mountain and to take it all in. And then once you're at base camp, you're facing that very scary place called the Icefall, the Kumbu Icefall. And it's called the Icefall because it's made out of ice and it falls. See, it's um, above the icefall, there's an area called the Western Coombe, which is a big valley of snow uh, surrounded by peaks. And of course, all that snow is coming down and then it goes over the edge, over that steep part, which is the icefall. And everything cracks open as it goes down. So you have big crevasses, you have towers of ice which are all not stable and you have to make your way through all that to get to the camp one. How do you cross that ice fall full of cracks and crevices? One step at a time. <laughs> are, there, are there ropes? Are there ladders or, or what? Yes, yes. There is a Sherpa team called the Icefall Doctors who fix the route through the icefall they put ladders, which are sometimes tied together, more sections than one, over crevasses and also to get to the top of towers. And you also have ropes that you can attach yourself to when you totter, you know, over the, the ladders, over the crevasses. And let me tell you, there's, there's a lot of swearing happening. <laughs> <laughs> so you are afraid. I mean, I said you weren't a normal person, but do you still feel fear in your body yeah. as you're doing that? Well, it's important to to feel fear. I mean, if, if you're fearless, you get yourself into very dangerous situations. But uh, I don't know if it's feeling fear, in fact. It's more like being aware. You are totally aware of where you are in the here and now. You really have to be present and aware of everything that is happening around you. And you try to move as fast as you can, of course, but as I said, you can only move one step at a time and pace yourself so you go slow but steady to the top. I think that's where experience comes in too. You know, I remember finding some people having lunch in a crevasse with a big tower of ice above them and they were sitting on big blocks of ice which obviously had fallen from above and they had stopped there and were having lunch. I just went, you know, what? <laughs> Some people are crazy. They just don't know, you know. When you're crossing the crevasses, would you look down or you keep your eyes ahead of you? It's very hard not to look down <laughs> and to use the F word <laughs> at every second step. <laughs> 
But yeah, the, the trick, it, it depends on the size of your feet. You're wearing big plastic boots. So if you're lucky, you can actually get onto two rings of the ladder at one time. But mine were just a little bit too short. So it was a balancing act to get to the other side of the, the ladders. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's quite entertaining. I mean, we're laughing, Brigitte, but this year, 1996, was an infamous one on Everest because I think 11 people died trying to ascend or ascending the mountain. Were you aware of that as you were climbing? I was actually on the South Coal when all that happened. So the South Coal is the last camp before the summit. And in fact, I'd looked up and looked at all those people who were going up and, and there was something that just didn't sit right with me, just didn't feel right to go up. You know, that there should have been, you should have been able to see the summit from where we were and you can see it. It was like completely covered in, in clouds and it was quite windy. So my whole being was telling me not to go up, but because everybody was going up, well, I went up too, didn't I? And we spent that night on the South Coal, sitting in the tap, holding its walls, because it was so windy that the tent was being flattened by the wind. And it would, if it had broken up, we would have been in big trouble. And while we were doing that, there were people who were trying to get to the summit. And it's no wonder that so many people died coming down. They, they, they just left the turning point, the turning time, too late. And the reason for that, I think, was that there were two very expensive expeditions on the mountain in those days. People were paying 65,000 US dollars mm -hmm. to climb it. And so nobody had climbed the mountain the year before. And those two expedition leaders were both trying to get the company on the top. So they forgot about safety. You didn't reach the top, but thankfully you made it back to Australia alive. So Brigitte, three attempts at Everest by this point. How did you muster the energy and, and will to keep going. <laughs> what I remember, oh gosh, how many times did I think like stopping? Um, yeah, quite a few times. But it's like any long-term goal, you know. I Once I decide to do something, I just have to take it to its natural end. And in this particular case, there was no way I could have stopped because it wasn't just me anymore. Since I'd started climbing on Everest, I had had to have people help me find money and there were sponsors and a lot of friends who believed in me. I remember, you know, in Animac, you go to the post office and you've got a, a, a box that you open and you get your mail out. And of course, it's a great time to have a yarn with people. And Rose told me, I have faith in you, Brigitte. And that was that, you know. I have to climb Everest because Rose has faith in me. <laughs> because Rose in your little country town has faith in you, you're going to do right. it. That's right, yeah, that kept me going. <laughs> well, thanks to Rose, you tried again in 1997 and the weather was bad again this year and you had to wait for weeks at, at base camp. Is that waiting, I mean, is that even harder in a way than the climbing? Um, it can be. There's... Something you have to, to know is that it always looks very serious and proper in everything uh, at base camps, but you live in a life and death situation, even if you're not aware of it. And that means that you seize the day. And in those days, you had Sherpas or local porters coming to base camp with big, big baskets full of beer bottles and Coca-Cola bottles. What, you were and, drinking at oh, base yeah. camp? <laughs> Partying at base camp. 
Oh yeah, party, party, party. <laughs> <laughs> There was a lot of that. Yeah. Are hangovers really bad at high altitude? <laughs> That's what I'd be worried about. You know what? I, I don't remember any <laughs> hangovers. But, but what happened is like you stuck for three weeks. Well, it ended up being three weeks that time without being able to go up on the mountain. So you have to do something, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And what what was your confidence like at this your your fourth attempt? Huh. My confidence. I was going to climb that fast <laughs> beep 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 mountain. <laughs> yeah, and I was determined. I had a song in my head, Elvis Presley. It's now or never. <laughs> Yeah, I was there to climb it and I wasn't going to stop until I did. And what was the moment of, of reaching the summit like? What do you remember? What stands out in your head when you think of that? Oh, you know, it's it's kind of funny because a lot of people ask me what I felt like when I stood on top of Everest like you just did. And I said, I don't know, I sat on it. <laughs> You just wanted to sit down. <laughs> well, yeah, there was a little ridge there which was about seat level and there was no way I was going to stand on it. I had a hard time getting there. I was going to sit so there again. <laughs> and is it a feeling of elation or are you just too exhausted to feel anything but what's ahead? I was relieved. Oh, well, I filmed myself so I can tell you that I said, No more up. Crikey. I'm never, ever coming back here again. One time, that's enough. <laughs> I was relieved that I'd finally finished the Seven Summit quest and I could, you know, think about doing something else. But just after climbing it, it was it was very strange because I arrived at base camp. It was right at the end of the expedition. Everyone had left camp. There was just a bunch of Sherpas there in the kitchen and... Uh, a couple in the process of splitting up. So I spent most of my time in the kitchen, which was a lot more fun than being in the mess tent with the couple and, and the lover. <laughs> and the next day, a helicopter flew into base camp to pick me up and take me back to civilization because I had been sponsored by a TV channel. So it was all very fast. You know, I didn't have time to process anything. It was just crazy. And it took quite, quite a while to realize what I'd actually done. Hmm. But I've been taking people on treks in the area and below the area of Everest. And the first time that I was back in the Everest area, I saw the mountain, which in Tibet, by the way, is called Chomolongma, the God of Mothers of the Earth, and in Nepal, Sagarmata. But to me, it's always been Chomolongma. I had to leave the people I was with, and I went over a little hill and looked at the mountain and I fell on my knees. And I've never had that kind of experience before or since. And I really felt part of everything, connected to everything and just in awe of the beauty of the world. And uh, I don't know, it was that extraordinary feeling that I believe people who believe in God have. Mm. So, Brigitte, it took you nine years, but you achieved this this kind of huge dream to climb the seven highest peaks on the seven continents. What happened to, to make you turn your back on that kind of high-altitude climbing? To me, climbing Everest was an experience that was not really high-altitude mountaineering because there's so much help on Everest. 
And I wanted to climb an 8,000-meter peak in, in better style, which meant without Sherpas and without oxygen. So I joined well, an you expedition. Thought you were cheating because you had oxygen and Sherpas. Well, um, I thought I was cheating. Well, I was reminded my my dear husband at the time that, you know, he had done it without oh. Sherpas. and. <laughs> So I felt like a bit ashamed, oh, you know, of cheap. having climbed Everest. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, people say that I'm competitive with my partners, but I don't think that's what it is. I, I just wanted him to be proud of me, you know. And somehow it just didn't feel like I was managing that. So I thought I'd go to another mountain without Sherpas and oxygen. And also that mountain, Makalu, had been um, a very special mountain for a different reason. John had lost his best friend, Mark Moorhead, on the mountain the year we got married, actually, in 83. Makalu is a beautiful mountain. It's an 8,000-meter peak, and I really, really wanted to make it a happy mountain and also to climb it without Sherpas and oxygen. So I joined an expedition to Makalu, and I was going to climb with a very dear friend of mine, Michael Jurgensen. And what happened was that as I was about to go for the summit, Michael fell down to his death coming down back from the summit. And I was at base camp when I heard the news. And that was it. I couldn't even get back on the mountain. I left everything there and I went home. And that was the end of my high-altitude climbing career. See, that was the first time that I had lost someone I loved to a mountain. I'd always been able to justify it before telling myself, well, you drive your car. If someone, you know, crashes and dies in a car accident, you don't stop driving, do you? It was that sudden, Brigitte. Mm, Straight away. It was that sudden, yeah. Did did you grieve the loss of that or, or it just felt so clearly the right thing for you to do? Oh, no, I grieved. Yeah, not not only my friend, but also my lifestyle, because I loved high-altitude climbing. It was one of those activities where it's a, I'm a colleague, an activity. What am I saying? It's a life that is just so special. When you're at high altitude, you have to breathe very deeply. That's if you don't have an oxygen mask on your face. And... Everything slows down and everything happens in the here and now. And that is something which is very special. And that is something that we really all need to cultivate because there is only now. But of course, at the time, I didn't know that. I just knew that climbing mountains was what was right for me and I couldn't do it anymore. So, yes, I had a really hard time over that. You couldn't do it because of the fear that, it might happen that that you might lose your life that way? Or or what was it about your friend's death that was so definitive for you? It was a sadness. I I just couldn't climb big mountains anymore because it was just too sad. Mm. See, I I knew Michael's parents and sister, and I met them in Kathmandu. They came over from Denmark um, after he died, and I met them back in Kathmandu after I walked out. And it was just so obvious that when you're someone who climbs a mountain and you've got loved one behind and you kill yourself for whatever reason, whether because you make a mistake or you have bad luck or the weather turns bad and you didn't expect it, whatever, and then the people behind have got to live with that, it it just really struck me as 
no, it's not on anymore. I just can't do it anymore. So how do you spend your time on mountains now or what took its place in terms of your connection with particularly the Himalayas? Well, eventually I I was invited by a company to take a trip to the north side of Everest to a call which is right at the bottom of the mountain and it, which is a window onto the base camp of Everest on the Nepali side. And that's how I started making my way to the mountains again, but this time just walking and working with the local people, the Nepali people. And I remembered how much I loved being with them. It was so much joy in the life of Nepali people. They really enjoy life. It's it's the best way I can describe it. So what, what kind of work do you do with them? Well, what happened was that I had met on one of my climbing trips a guy called Lakpatamang, who had the most amazing smile. And I thought, oh, I wonder what's behind that smile. And he invited me to go and stay in his village. And then each time I had a trip, I would stop by in the village and spend time with the family and the people in the village. And I realised, oh, it'd be wonderful to share this with other people and to somehow get some money together to help the villagers too. And one of the things that really struck me was that the women couldn't read and write. My friend's wife, she couldn't read the letters that her husband was sending when he was on expedition. She had to run around and find someone to read them for her, which is why it started. I I fundraised to start literacy classes and numeracy classes and empowerment classes for the women in the village. And I started taking groups to the village to help them see a different way of life. Being with the women in the village of Laura really has made me realise how much I have to learn and how important it is to share learning with other people and, in fact, with other women, because I believe that women really have a lot to do with changing the world, if only they decide to do so. And so I, I want to take more women's group. But it's it's such a beautiful experience spending time with sisters and... I love spending time with my Nepali sisters. You've mentioned a few times, Brigitte, the the sense of immediacy, of nowness, of in the moment that being on those high altitude climbs would give you and how difficult that is to do back on sea level. What are the moments in your life that lets you at least touch some of that? Oh, walking still does it for me. (laughs) And it's a great way to catch up with friends. So I go walking with friends and we go on walkie-talkies. And also, when I do something, I try to remind myself to be there when I do it. You know, whether it's doing the dishes or talking to you, Sarah, today. (laughs) I try to be in the moment, not thinking about what's going to happen in five minutes or what I did five minutes ago. It's it's very hard. It's, It's actually a discipline. But it's very rewarding as well. And so I try to do it in everything I do. But being in nature is really the best way to connect to that, I think. I think you should write a new Tintin like Tintin does the dishes. (laughs) Well, no, it's Eric does the dishes because I do the cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Tintin talks with friends in nature. It is really, really remarkable to hear your stories and your reflections on your experiences. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. 
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.